When I used to live in Chilliwack, B.C., there was a Christian man who had a farm right next to the main highway, Highway 1, that goes through the, through the valley there. And for a long time, that man on, his, on that farm, he had a sign, a big sign, like one of those big billboards that you, you can see sometimes when you're driving on the highway. And on that, that sign, there were four words printed really big so that people driving by, they, they, just, they couldn't miss it. These were the four words. Prepare to meet God. Prepare to meet God. These words actually come from a verse in the Old Testament in Amos 4 verse 12. And in the context of that passage, you can look it up later if you want to see it for yourself. But but in its context, God is speaking these words to a, a stubborn and an unrepentant people. And what he means, what he's, at least in part, what he's saying when he says, prepare to meet thy God, is that he's coming in judgment. He's coming in his holy and righteous wrath to punish their disobedience, their wickedness, their stubborn refusal to repent. Congregation, what we all deserve by nature is, is to meet God like that. Because we're all sinners. We've all been disobedient and rebellious against God. We all deserve to have to meet God in His wrath and in His judgment. To put it another way, we all deserve to suffer hell. It's what we deserve because of our sins. Now for for many of us, that's nothing new. We've heard it all our life. We know it, and, and we, we might even say, yes, we, we agree with that. But beloved, my, my question for us all this morning is how much, how much do we truly understand what that's like? What it's like to meet God in His wrath? What it's like to suffer hell? Some of you maybe are here and the thought of meeting God in His wrath and judgment has never bothered you. Or maybe it has and you've just pushed it off. Or or maybe you're here and, and you are here and it does. Maybe that thought, the thought of meeting God in His wrath and judgment has brought you even to the point of crying out with that Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Maybe... Maybe, and I I hope this is true for many of us, maybe that thought has brought you to cast yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ who took the burden of God's wrath on himself in the place of sinners. And yet if you look at your life, how little appreciation for Christ there can be at times. How little thankfulness to him. How little living in grateful obedience to him. You wonder why? Well, isn't it partly because we, at least at at times, we, we fail to really understand what it was like for him to save us. What it was like for him to have to meet, as it were, God, his Father, in his holy and just wrath. What it was like for him to have to drink the cup of God's wrath that we deserved to drink. What it was like for him to have to suffer hell. 
Our passage this morning, Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, it gives us a glimpse. It gives us a glimpse of what it is to meet God in his wrath, what it is to suffer hell. It gives us a glimpse of of what Christ did for sinners who trust in him, what he really suffered for him, for them, so that we would be humbled before him and so that we would learn to trust him and to love him and to obey him and above all to worship him. Lord willing, this will be the first of several sermons reflecting on the sufferings of our Savior from Luke 22 and 23. And we're starting with this passage because it really, it really sets Christ's sufferings in their proper light. It helps us to understand, you see, what the essence of his suffering was all about. It wasn't about so much his suffering at the hands of men, though that's, that's all part of it. And we'll be seeing that as well. But, but the essence of his suffering was his bearing the wrath of God. You see, Christ here in the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is about to enter into that intense suffering. A suffering that he calls a cup. And that cup, if you look at Old Testament references to the cup, it's clearly the cup of the wrath of God. Or to put it another way, it's hell. Because that's what hell is. Hell is the drinking in of the holy and righteous wrath of God. And what Jesus is doing here on the Mount of Olives is preparing to drink that cup. Preparing to meet God, not in his love, but in his wrath. Preparing to suffer hell. It's a scene, a scene in our text is a scene, beloved, that demands, demands our greatest reverence. My prayer is that as I preach it, and as we listen to it, we would do so with profound awe and reverence and worship. And so our theme then, with God's help, is Jesus prepares to suffer hell. And we'll consider first the plea he makes, secondly, the submission he shows, and thirdly, the answer he receives. So in the first place, let's listen to the plea he makes. In verses 41 and 42, we read these words that, that, and he, that's Jesus, was withdrawn from his disciples about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Do you hear Christ's plea in this text? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. What a plea. Notice, first of all, it's a a prayerful plea. Prayer is is really the whole theme of this passage, both at the beginning in in verse 40, when Jesus and his disciples first arrive at the Mount of Olives, and, and then at the end in verse 46, Jesus commands his disciples to pray that they might not enter into temptation. And then in between those, those commands, we read twice in, in, in verses 41 and verse 44 that Jesus himself was praying. And so this passage really is, is all about prayer. And there's, there's a lesson for us in that. Jesus, Jesus is about to suffer here, and, and he knows his disciples are going to suffer too. He just told them things are about to change. And he, he's warned, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me. 
And so out of his, his great concern, even, even though he's, he's facing a suffering that is, that is going to be so intense, he, out of his great concern for them, he commands them, he urges them to pray. He wants them to be ready. And the way to be ready, the way to prepare for suffering, the suffering that the disciples will be facing is to pray. To pray not that we might be spared suffering so much, but that we might not enter into temptation. How often do we pray that? Really, truly. Maybe, maybe you have to confess that you're so often like the disciples in our text. They failed to pray, didn't they? They failed to pray at all. We read at the end of the passage in verse 45 that Jesus finds them sleeping from sorrow. But the Lord Jesus here, he doesn't sleep. He prays. He knows he is about to enter his greatest time of suffering. He is about to suffer hell. But what does he do? He doesn't run away. He doesn't plead with his disciples to hide him. He doesn't tell them, we need to leave here because, because Judas knows that we come here all the time and, and, and he's coming, he's going to betray me, so, so we need to leave. No. He is about to suffer hell and so what does he do? He withdraws a stone's throw from his disciples. He falls on his knees and he prays earnestly to his father. Oh, how he loves. How he loves and honors his father. His plea is a prayerful plea, but it's, it's also an anguished plea. You sense something of the anguish in Luke's note that he knelt down. Because it wasn't normal in those days for, for people to, to pray that way. Normally, in, in normal circumstances, you prayed standing up in those days. And so his kneeling down in the dirt, and, and Matthew and Mark tell us that he also fell on his face, it, it points to his anguish. But we also hear his anguish in the plea itself. What was that plea? What was the Lord Jesus asking his father to do? Remove this cup from me. Not, Father, give me strength to drink it, not, Father, let me drink only some of it. But, Father, remove, remove this cup from me. Take it away. Why? Why was the Lord Jesus in such anguish and distress about this cup? It's because of the kind of cup it was. It wasn't just a cup of suffering in general. Jesus had suffered lots all of his life. He wasn't afraid of suffering so, so much. But the cup, beloved, the cup was, as I mentioned at the beginning, is the cup of God's wrath. The Old Testament used the image of a cup to describe the wrath of God. Just for one example, listen to Psalm 75, verse 8. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he pours out of the same Butter, surely the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them, or they shall drain, drink them and drain the cup. The very last drop. That language maybe is a little bit hard to understand, but, but you can hear it. Can't you hear the reference to the cup in the hand of the Lord, a cup that the wicked would drink down? And, and in other places of the Old Testament, that cup is specifically called a cup of fury, a cup, the cup of God's wrath. 
his holy wrath on sin. That's the cup that Jesus is speaking about here. That's the cup that he is facing, that he is about to drink. Not because of his own sin, he'd had no sin, but because he is about, he is bearing the sins, the iniquities of his people. And Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God in his humanity, dreads that cup. He dreads the thought of drinking it. He shrinks in horror from it. And his horror, as, as, as Calvin puts it, was because he, as our sin bearer, had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It is impossible, congregation, to fully appreciate the Lord's anguished plea. But we must hear it. Hear it. We must listen to him crying out in his anguish in the Mount of Olives there in the dark. Remove this cup from me. It's the cry not just of a mere man. It's the cry of the God-man. The cry of the one who is almighty. It's the cry of God the Son in human flesh. Do you hear him, congregation? Do we hear him crying out in his anguish? Remove this cup from me. What does that tell us? Doesn't it tell us how terrible, how awful the holy wrath of God must be? Doesn't it tell us how utterly horrifying hell must be? Listen. Listen to the incarnate Son of God pleading with his Father. Behold him on his knees there, preparing to meet God in his wrath. He trembles, he dreads, he cringes at the thought of suffering hell. Oh, then how, how can any one of us here, how can anyone just shrug our shoulders at it? How can any one of you here who are unconverted this morning not want to be saved? How can you just go on You have your plans maybe for this week to just live it up, to go out to that party, to go out and drink, to go out and do whatever you want. But at any moment, God could bring you to his judgment seat. How can you listen to the almighty Son of God in human flesh as a perfectly righteous man pleading with his Father on the Mount of Olives to remove the cup of his wrath from him? How can you hear his anguished plea and still refuse to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Do we hear it, congregation? Do you hear it? Do you hear that anguished plea of the Son of God on his knees? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. How that plea should humble us before God how it teaches us the offensiveness and the awful wickedness of our sins and how it should make us then to hate sin and to flee from it. Yes, how it should make us all the more prayerful too in light of our own weakness that we might not enter into temptation. 
But maybe you say, how could Jesus have prayed that? Doesn't his flinching at the cup of God's wrath mean he wasn't perfect? No, it doesn't mean that. His plea, beloved, was not a sinful plea. It was a holy plea. You see, as as one commentator put it, if you understand the contents of the cup, then the desire to avoid it is part of his perfection. The contents of the cup, remember, are the wrath, is the wrath of God. Jesus shrinking back from that cup reveals his godliness. It reveals his holiness. Because godly people, holy people, don't want God's wrath. They want God's love. You think of it this way, children. Imagine your dad was angry with you because you disobeyed him for for some reason. Maybe, let's just say, you, you used his computer or something when he told you not to do it. Or would it be a good sign if you just... You didn't care that he was angry with you. If you didn't care that that he was unhappy with you. That wouldn't be a good sign, would it? It would be a bad sign. If you love your dad, you'll care when he's angry with you, when he's upset with you. And so in the same way, you see, it would be a bad sign if Jesus didn't care about having to drink the cup of God's wrath. His plea, to quote that same commentator, is not a blemish that mars his commitment to the work of the cross as if he were not macho enough here. Rather, his plea is the jewel of his character. It's a sign of his perfection. It's a holy plea. The real problem, beloved, is not that Jesus prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. The real problem is that we by nature don't pray that. By nature, we don't care that God is angry with us. By nature, we don't see our need of salvation. We don't care. For us to pray, Lord, save me, we need grace. We need grace. And thank God, thank God, beloved, there is grace. We know that because our text shows us not only the plea Jesus makes, but also, and here we come to our second point, the the submission he shows. It's actually really beautiful, isn't it? He, he, He bookends his plea with his submission. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes, the Lord Jesus pleads with his Father to remove this cup from him, but he also shows submission. And imagine, congregation, if he had not. Imagine if he had fallen on his knees and all that he had prayed was, Lord, Father, remove this cup from me. What do you think would have happened? Matthew tells us that when Jesus rebukes Peter shortly after, shortly after this for cutting off the high priest's ear, he says to him, Jesus says to Peter, do you not think that I, that I cannot now pray? Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father? And he shall presently give me 12 legions of angels. In other words, if, if the Lord Jesus wanted to, he could pray. He, he could have refused to suffer. He could have avoided it. He could have had the cup of God's wrath taken away from him. All he had to do was pray, Father, remove this cup from me. But if he had, as Jesus goes on to explain to Peter, if he had prayed for 12 legions of angels, or if he had prayed simply, 
for the removal of the cup, the scriptures would not have been fulfilled. And if he had prayed that, no one, no one, not a single one of us here could have escaped hell. And not a single one of us would have prayed, Lord, save me. But thank God, thank God that's not all he prayed. Thank God that as he prepared to suffer hell, he not only, he not only pleaded that, that the cup might be removed from him, but he also showed his submission. And the amazing thing, congregation, is that his submission wasn't forced. It was a willing. It was a voluntary submission. In his humanity, he saw what was coming, and it, and it filled him with dread. The hell, the, the wrath of God that he was about to suffer filled him with horror so much that he pleaded, pleaded with his father to take that cup away. And yet even as he makes that plea, he wraps it in willing submission. Father, if thou be willing, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He freely surrenders himself to his father's will. Can you understand that? Jesus had said several times during his lifetime that he came to do his Father's will. But here in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives is the real test. Is he really willing to do his Father's will? Even if it means he must drink this cup. Even if it means he must suffer hell. Yes. Yes. He's willing. He willingly submits to his Father's will for him, even if it means that in just a few hours he will drink that cup of wrath. Why? Why? Why did he willingly submit to his Father's will? I know only one explanation. His deep love. His deep love for his father and his deep love with his father for the sinful people that he came to save. The reason, the reason Jesus willingly submitted to suffer hell is that he loves you, dear believer, even more than you can imagine. What else can explain that? He willingly submitted to his Father's will so that he could save sinners, so that he could, by his Holy Spirit, also bring them to pray, Lord, save me, and so that he could answer that prayer. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His submission was willing, and it was also sacrificial. Christ here, he, he emphatically renounces. He denies his own will. He sacrifices it. Not my will, but thine be done. How do we make sense of that? Well, we can say some things. We can say he's speaking here of his human will. But, 
But at the end of the day, I, I can't make sense of it. I, I don't know how to make sense of it. It's part of the mystery of, of him being distinctly God and distinctly man in one person. You, we, we can't fully understand it. We can only see his submission and marvel and, and bow in awe and thank him for it. How can we not? Dear Christian, when you see Christ here sacrificing his own will, sacrificing his own desire, denying himself, humbling himself, even to this point that he is willing to submit to his Father and to take and to drink the cup of his Father's wrath in your place, the cup that should have been yours, then what sacrifice can there be for him that is too much for you to make? Don't we owe our lives and our love to him? The submission he shows is a willing submission. It's a sacrificial submission. And it's also a total submission. The Lord Jesus doesn't hold anything back. He gives himself up completely. Let not my will be done. Not a single shred of it. But thine and thine alone, Father. Total submission. Though he shuddered at the cup. Though he in his humanity recoiled from that cup that awaited him. Should we not stand in awe of such a Savior? The plea, the plea he makes reveals the horror of hell. And the submission he shows reveals the love of the Savior. But the answer he receives really brings both of these things. The horror of hell the love of the Savior, together. You see, in the answer he receives, and and this is now our third point, in the answer he receives, those two things, they they come together, and we see that in, in verses 43 and 44. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So children, what is the answer? What is the answer that Jesus receives? It's an angel, isn't it? As Jesus is kneeling in the dirt and crying out, pleading with his Father to remove the cup of his wrath from him, and at the same time denying his, his, his own will, In submission to the Father, an angel appears from heaven. And what does that angel do? Does he say something to Jesus? Does the angel rescue Jesus and and take him up like the angels came with the chariots of fire and, and took Elijah up into heaven? No, that's not what happens. The angel appears to Jesus and strengthens him. What an answer. Doesn't it show us, doesn't it show us again how terrible the cup of God's wrath against sin must be? That it made Jesus, as he prepared to drink it, so weak in his human nature that his father sent an angel to strengthen him. There's so much we cannot understand about all this. But we can learn this, the wrath of God on sin must be terrible. Hell must be awful. 
Oh, that we would all be convinced of this. Oh, that God would impress this scene upon your and my heart, congregation, so that we turn from sin and so that we run to Jesus Christ for salvation and live in thankfulness to him, seeking to be as holy as we possibly can. And so that we also then won't be ashamed of of him, that we would tell others about him, others who are going to hell, unless they believe in him. Yes, what an answer. What an answer, not just because it reminds us again of how awful hell is, but also because of what that answer ultimately means. Do you know what it means? It means that God's answer to his son's plea is no. No, my son. I'm not going to remove this cup from you. I'm not willing to do that. My will is that you drink it. My will is, my son, for you to suffer hell. You see, congregation, God didn't send the angel to rescue Jesus. He didn't even send the angel to comfort Jesus. He sent the angel to strengthen him, to keep him from dying that very moment, to keep him from dying before the cross, to keep him from dying before the cup, to keep him from dying before suffering hell. What an answer. God's answer to his son's plea was no. And why? So that his answer, so that his answer to your plea and to your cry could be yes. He said no to his perfectly righteous son's plea. To remove that cup so that he could remove that cup from unrighteous, sinful people who deserve it. So that he could save from hell everyone who cries out to him, hoping in and depending on Christ alone for mercy. What an answer Jesus receives. What a gospel answer. But oh, let us never forget, congregation, let us never forget the impact God's answer had on the Savior. And we see that impact described for us in verse 44. There he is in the dirt, in agony, as he anticipates the cup, as he anticipates hell. There he is, praying, 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 praying earnestly, praying fervently. There he is, in an agony so intense as he prepares to suffer hell that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Never forget the impact of God's answer on Christ. 
And let it teach us two things. The two things I've been saying over and over again. Let it teach us, first of all, never to think lightly of hell or of sin. And let it teach us, secondly, never to think lightly of the love of Christ. If you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, I plead with you. Look at this scene. Verse 44, look at it. I plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ to repent and to be converted now. Turn to him for salvation. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses. Don't say hell isn't real or that a loving God wouldn't send you there. God is a loving God, but he is also a just and holy God, so just and so holy that in order to save hell-deserving sinners, in order to remove his cup of wrath from them, he gave it to his only begotten Son. And now he calls sinners everywhere to repent, to come to him in faith, to be saved. And he promises, he promises that when you do so, you will not have to meet this God, him in his wrath anymore. Because the Son did it for you. You can meet him in his love. With his open arms of blessing. Oh, then won't you come? Won't you believe? Don't fool yourself that it will all be okay in the end. It won't be. Look at Jesus in verse 44. If you refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, it won't be okay for you. But it will be okay. No, it'll be more, more than okay for all who do look to Jesus because he, in his unfathomable love, Submitted to his Father's will. He submitted to drinking the cup of God's wrath. Every last drop. He submitted to suffering. How? So my dear fellow disciples, that's what we are if we're believing in Jesus. We are his disciples. And let our Savior's preparing himself to suffer hell shake us awake. That we would see what he has done for us. What caused him such agony there? What caused that, that sweat that dropped like great drops of blood to the ground? It was our sin. It was our sin. Oh then, surely that should make us hate sin. Surely that should make us devoted to him. Surely that should make us rise and pray that we might not enter into temptation or not. I began this sermon, congregation, by telling you about that sign by the highway near Chilliwack, prepare to meet God. That's what Jesus is doing on the Mount of Olives. And he did it so that we could meet God not anymore in his holy wrath, but in his infinite, incomprehensible love. Oh, then let us humbly trust and let us faithfully love and serve our Savior. Yes, let us love the triune God of our salvation. Amen.